It's Wednesday, September 4th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. A weakened Hurricane Dorian is headed northwest, and the threat to South Florida has diminished after claiming the lives of five people and devastating the Bahamas. The next spot for worry could be coastal Georgia and the Carolinas. Andrew Friedman, deputy weather editor at The Washington Post, joins us for more on what to expect from Hurricane Dorian. Next, a mysterious tragedy in the California Bay Area, where a diving boat caught fire and sank, taking with it 34 people. Most of them were caught below deck when the fire broke out and likely had no means of escape. Only five crew members survived when they jumped off the boat. My producer, Victor Wright, joins us for what we know so far. Finally, the Trump administration has reached an agreement in principle with the Taliban to withdraw over 5,000 troops from Afghanistan over the next five months. It would all depend on the Taliban meeting certain requirements, such as a reduction in violence in the area. Deirdre Shesgreen, foreign affairs reporter at USA Today, joins us for concerns and details about this deal with the Taliban. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. Be prepared. Be prepared. This is a hurricane. As the president uh, said, we, we've not seen such power in a hurricane, 185 miles an hour. That's Category 5 and going towards whatever the top of that is. Joining us now is Andrew Friedman, deputy weather editor at The Washington Post. Thanks for joining us, Andrew. Thanks for having me. We're going to be talking about Hurricane Dorian. It was just pummeling the Bahamas over the weekend. Everybody's looking for what's next. We're looking at the trajectory of the hurricane, and it doesn't seem like it's going to make a direct impact on Florida. And we're looking forward to what's going to be happening after that. Let's start off there. What is the trajectory telling us? And then we'll talk about Dorian and the big impacts that it had on the Bahamas. So the trajectory now looks like it'll probably bring mostly tropical storm force winds and a few hurricane force gusts potentially to the Florida coast. It's pretty much paralleling the coast, moving a little bit closer, but the shape of the coastline kind of makes it so that it's hard to hit Florida while traveling to the northwest. You just sort of have to picture the peninsula. So it doesn't look like it's going to be a major deal there, although a wobble to the west could put some in uh, more danger than is currently expected. I noticed you mentioned that in your article, in your write-up about the hurricane, the wobble. It could wobble to the west or wobble to the east, and that could make all the difference in the world right there. Because some of the predictions for this have been a little bit uncertain. We we just don't know exactly where it's going to head next. The predictions have really been based on the different factors that tend to steer such storms. And the, the amazing thing is, like, hurricanes are nature's most powerful and largest storms that we see. And yet, they're incredibly fickle. They're steered by internal dynamics. They're steered by cold fronts and high-pressure areas and respond a lot to the world around them. So this one is now moving towards an area where a high-pressure area that was putting it on a westerly path is now weakening. So it's kind of going towards that weakness, and it'll get picked up by a an area, sort of a trough of low pressure. It's just that the questions have been like exactly when does the stall end? Exactly where does the turn northwest happen? Exactly what happens with these other turns too. And that's exactly what happened with the Bahamas. It just stalled out over there for like a day and a half. The strongest point that it had, it was a category five. It's now weakened down to category two and, and we'll see where that keeps going. But the Bahamas were just in it for a long time. 
We've never actually seen a storm, at least that we can recall, that was so powerful, stalled out over one land area for so long. This was around 40 hours of major hurricane conditions, so Cat 3 or above, on Grand Bahama Island, which is where Freeport is, and many other locations had a day-long barrage of extreme winds, storm surge flooding. It's unimaginable what that was like and how that compounded the damage potential, but the images coming out of there, the early images, are, are not encouraging. They're saying that Dorian has been the slowest moving major hurricane ever observed in the Atlantic. And there's a bunch of other historical points that it's hit. I mean, it's the second strongest storm ever recorded in the Atlantic Ocean. It's setting some precedent here. Yeah, it really is. It was at the high end of the scale. It was tied for first strongest, uh, the strongest landfalling storm in terms of wind speed. And it also did something that we don't see often, which is it rapidly intensified. But when it did that, it did it at the upper end of the scale. So it went from a pretty strong four to a pretty strong five pretty quickly. Usually we see these rapid intensification rates happen down in the lower categories. But this was especially interesting from a scientific standpoint, but really scary. So where are the next big concerns? Obviously, the whole entire coast, the hurricane is going to have an effect no matter where it goes, if it hits a direct hit or not, or if it just kind of rides the coast. But the next big place of concern are going to be uh, Georgia, maybe South Carolina, and, and, and then even beyond that, North Carolina. This is going to play out for the rest of the work week, but it looks like once it gets past Florida, really our focus is going to turn towards the Carolinas. There are computer models that are calling for a landfall in one or both of these states. It'll definitely be close enough to bring pretty strong winds ashore and some coastal flooding issues. These are both states that are pretty vulnerable to storm surge flooding. So it's not going to be a storm, at least the way it looks right now, like of historic significance there, but it'll still bring pretty sizable impacts. And for now, as soon as it moves away for the Bahamas, it's going to be a complete point of recovery. There was five deaths that were reported. The full extent of the damage is, is far from clear because as we've talked about this in the past, you have to wait for all the floodwaters to diminish so you can really see all the damage. And it's for a place that makes most of its money off of tourism, I mean, this is going to be a long time for them to recover before they can get back on their feet. It's really discouraging. The images that have come out already, and I think they are starting to understand the scope and scale of the response and rescue operation that needs to be mounted. But they do have at least two major airports that seem to still be underwater, which limits things. I know the Coast Guard is taking the lead in helping the Bahamas government respond. But really the big story I think that's going to emerge is really what the toll was in the Bahamas. It really was just a super powerful storm. Andrew Friedman, Deputy Weather Editor at the Washington Post. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. That boat was 75 feet long. As soon as I saw it, you know, as soon as I opened the door, it was uh, totally engulfed in flame all the way from the bow to the stern. Uh, the flames could have been 30 feet high. I mean, it was, there wasn't a spot on that boat that wasn't burning. Joining me now is my producer, Victor Wright. Thanks for being here, Victor. Thank you.
We had a huge tragedy over the long Labor Day weekend. A diving boat called the Conception caught on fire and many of the people on board died. 34 people are presumed dead. And this is coming after the search for survivors is being called off by the Coast Guard. A lot of the victims, they say, were below deck and were unable to escape. The only people that did manage to survive were five crew members whose sleeping quarters were above deck. Basically, they were not caught in this in the whole fire. The Coast Guard crews have now shifted their efforts to finding remains and recovering the vessel. This is after they spent at least 24 hours searching the area in and around where the boat sank. Victor, tell us a little bit more about what happened on this Conception diving boat. Well, one of the issues is that really nobody knows what exactly happened. Right now, there's no indication that they were able to escape at all. And the fire was so bad and they were so badly burned that officials are asking family members for DNA so that they can test them so that they can confirm who is what in this situation. Yeah, the fire was so hot and apparently it blocked both of the ways that were out of the quarters that were below. People who have been on that boat before this dive boat was very popular with families and people who wanted to go you know, scuba diving, things like that. People that have been on this boat said that there was a hatch above the bunk beds, so you can use the bunk beds as kind of a ladder to climb out. And then there was another door behind, but they believe that the fire and the smoke was so bad that it just blocked everything and they couldn't get out of there. Right. And people who had already been on this boat who were coming to talk about the conception and the company that ran the boat have said that it is one of the safest boats. It has passed the Coast Guard's inspections. The few times that there were issues, the owner was able to correct these issues almost immediately. They also said that every single time before they went out, that there was always a meeting about safety protocols. Where is the escape hatch? How to put on a life vest? Where to go? How to navigate stairwells and everything like that? But Two major things, like you just said, A, the fire more than likely blocked escape hatches and stairwells, and two, it was 3.30 in the morning, dark with smoke everywhere. I don't, no matter how much training you get, that's a massively scary time, and fear might have set in. There was a company called Worldwide Diving Adventures who chartered the conception for the Labor Day weekend diving trip. You know, it was advertised on the website for a chance for divers to see colorful sea life up close near the Channel Islands in California. Uh, I mean, this was a fun family Labor Day type event. The boat itself was owned by Santa Barbara-based Truth Aquatics. And as you mentioned, they had passed all their recent inspections. Any safety issues they did have were quickly resolved. One of the people that helped the victims once they escaped was Bob Hansen. He was in a nearby boat called the Grape Escape. That's his boat. When the five crew members that escaped the fire jumped off, they went to his boat. He was nearby, so they just uh, got in a dinghy and went right over to him. Here's a little clip of Bob Hansen speaking to George Stephanopoulos on Good Morning America about the crew members coming to him. They had woken up to fire on board. They had actually woken the captain up, and uh, uh, it sounds like the captain tried to make a... uh, a mayday call, but uh, the fire was so intense, they ended up jumping off the boat. We also have a clip of the mayday call, and this is interesting. I mean, it, you can hear the worry in the call. 
You can hear the person at one point saying, I can't breathe. This is indication that the fire was raging at that point. A lot of smoke. Here's a little bit of that 911 call. So now moves on to the investigation. The NTSB is looking into what's going on. We still don't know exactly what caused the fire, but it's likely that since they were doing a diving trip, they had oxygen tanks or tanks that had uh, something called nitrox in there, which is a blend of pure oxygen and air. Uh, I think at some point they said that there was explosions happening. So that could have been some of these air tanks going, but we still don't know. In, in a lot of these cases, when boats catch on fire, it's either engine trouble or maybe electrical problems. It's important to note pure oxygen on its own is not flammable. It's not combustible, but it will lead a small fire into a massively big fire. When you have oxygen tanks or diving tanks, you need special tanks or you need special equipment that has materials or chemicals to prevent something like this happening if there is a fire on board. We'll have to wait for this investigation. It truly is a tragedy. Among some of these victims were five members of the same family from Stockton, two students from Santa Cruz High School, a father and a daughter. The majority of these people were from the Santa Cruz, San Jose Bay Area region in California. So they were all locals mostly. Uh, But again, we'll have to wait to see what the investigation bears out. Thank you, Victor. Thank you. We want peace and we want our country to be free and liberated. We want good relation with all countries, including USA. Alas, they had understood that. 18 years before. Joining us now is Deirdre Shesgreen, foreign affairs reporter for USA Today. Thanks for joining us, Deirdre. Thanks so much for having me. We're going to be talking about this possible deal that the U.S. government is reaching with the Taliban to withdraw 5,000 troops from Afghanistan within five months, a little bit more than 5,000. I think we're looking at 5,400 troops within 135 days this would be the start of what is expected to be the gradual withdrawal of all troops in that area and could end America's longest running war. Deirdre, start us off. Tell us a little bit about this deal and the people that we're making this deal with, the Taliban. So first, the U.S. is calling this an agreement in principle. So officials are leaving some room for this to fall apart. And they're not providing a great deal of detail at this point. But as you said, it would involve, what we do know is it would involve withdrawing a little more than 5,000 American troops from Afghanistan over the next five months on the condition that the Taliban works to reduce violence and prevent Afghanistan from becoming a haven for terrorists again. And the reason that this can be called an agreement in principle is that the Afghan government has been excluded from the talks. The Taliban has refused to negotiate with the Afghan government and saying they will only sit down with President Ghani after all foreign military forces have withdrawn. With all of this kind of background and this history, it seems odd that the United States would be wanting to make a deal with them. 
Exactly. And the Taliban itself is a militant Islamic group. And critics are saying that the Taliban cannot be trusted to keep to this, these promises or make sure that Afghanistan doesn't become a haven again for another militant group. You're talking about how part of the deal is a reduction in violence. First of all, that's a little hard to quantify or, or you know, really hold them to. But hours after this announcement of this deal in principle, then we get news that the Taliban had conducted some suicide bombings against an international compound there in the Afghan capital. And they took credit for it and they said, hey, we're coming from a strong position, a strong negotiating position on this. We're not weak. You know, we're still going to handle our business here. And it's just so awkward for this all to be happening as they're signaling a possible deal. It's happening in the midst of these ongoing attacks. This war right now is a stalemate. And there's a sense that the U.S. cannot win by leaving the current troop levels where it is. And there's not appetite to increase the troop levels to a level where the U.S. could win. So the Taliban controls at least half the country right now, and they're gaining more territory by the month. And this attack that you mentioned, which killed 16 people, is an example of the state of the war. Can you just briefly tell us what are the goals of each side in this long-standing war? Because, I mean, people just tend to forget. Where, what does the U.S. want to accomplish? What does the Taliban want to accomplish there? The U.S. goals in Afghanistan have changed dramatically over the 18 years that we've been involved there. You know, it started out as a desire to topple the Taliban and chase al-Qaeda out and capture Osama bin Laden. That became a much broader mission after the Taliban fell initially. And they were able to sort of defeat al-Qaeda. It became more of a nation-building mission where we were trying to promote democracy inside of Afghanistan. And under President Trump, the mission is narrowing again, where the focus is more on counterterrorism focuses, where basically the goal is to prevent Afghanistan from being used as a location where terrorists can plot attacks on the West. I think the Taliban's goal here is domestic power within Afghanistan. So they do not have international terrorist goals in terms of striking the West, but they certainly have domestic power designs. From just some reading, it seems like they control about half of the country, if not a little bit more, and they make gains all the times. You mentioned, you know, there really is not an appetite to keep troops there or increase troop levels. This has been going on for nearly 18 years. There has been the loss of 2,400 American service members, 38,000 Afghan civilians, and it's cost U.S. taxpayers almost a trillion dollars, according to researchers at Brown University. So this is expensive. There is a lot of capital loss as far as lives go, and it's just a, a very hard thing to get a handle on. I'm assuming that's why the United States is going as far as trying to strike a deal with the Taliban to end all of this. Deirdre Shesgreen, foreign affairs reporter for USA Today. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you so much. That's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment. Give us a rating and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. 
This episode of The Daily Dive was produced by Victor Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive.